Welcome back to Not A Dollar More. My name is Shane Rogers. This is Australia's first podcast series dedicated to helping people who are wanting to stop or control their gambling, or for people who just want to know more about the potential harmful effects of gambling. I've experienced a gambling addiction myself, so I know all about it. Relapses, triggers and urges are often part of the harmful loop people find themselves in when their gambling has got out of control. In this episode, we'll be taking a closer look at what happens when people experience relapse, urges and triggers and what you can do about it. We'll chat to two people about their personal experiences and we'll also speak to a gambler's help counsellor about what's actually happening in your brain when you experience urges and triggers. Our first guest is Gabby Byrne, who's here to talk about both her personal journey with addiction and also about her professional work and research into relapse prevention. Welcome, Gabby. Can you start off by giving us a snapshot of what happened to you when you first got introduced to the pokies? In 1992, when poker machines came into Victoria, I entered a gaming room for the first time on a Friday night with a group of people where we frequented this pub. This became a gaming venue, and instead of sitting around a table having a drink and discuss how bad our boss was, we went into this gaming room together, and I still remember thinking, God, that's boring. After being there a few weeks in a row with my friends, I had a major argument with my boss, and this little voice popped up and said, don't resign, just go somewhere and forget about it. Where do you go? Oh, go to this pokey place. So that was the first time I went by myself, and within three to five weeks, I was there every day sometimes three to five times a day, basically as often as I could get money or time to go there. So that was the start, and it lasted almost five years. Mm-hmm. I realized quite early that I had an issue. After five months, I went through most of our savings. My husband trusted me completely, so I had access to all our money. And he found a school fee bill where he knew he'd given me the money for and. I had to confess that I spent all this money in a gaming room. And the first thing my husband said was, thank God it's only that. I thought you were having an affair. So from then on, we both really tried very, very hard to find a way for me to get off that roller coaster. What did your urges feel like? It felt like I was being taken over by something that I had no control over a part of me was still the responsible wife and mother and a good worker, but when I needed to feed the beast, nothing would stop me, and I became irrational, totally absorbed by just the intense feeling of needing to go to gamble. Was there particular triggers? Eventually, everything became a trigger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah If I was happy, I thought, well, this is my lucky day. If I was sad, it was when oh, I need to go and forget about this. If I had a fight with my husband, which happened often because of money, everything eventually became a trigger for me to go gambling. Yeah, right. Could you share with us what the relapses were like? The distance between my relapses became longer. At the beginning, it was like as often as I had money, I left the council's office and I could, with sheer willpower, maybe walk past four venues. If there was a fifth one and I had money or time, it would get me. I would just walk through the door. So with a lot of different approaches to stop, like I went through counselling, hypnotherapy, Christian counselling, I went through psychologist, psychiatrist, and every time the distances between my relapses became a bit longer until 
I was able to stop. Was there any one or two things in particular that you think might have helped more than the others? Yeah, I think my main switch came when I did a course of applied psychology called neurolinguistic programming. So it's a big word, right? But all it means is there were some hands-on strategies that I could do to fight the urge. And that's what helped me to focus on. And there are things that I could do in my everyday life. It's not that I have to put time aside for it. It was something I could do to fight it the moment it it started. And, And I worked very hard on this. And these things made you more confident? Yeah, I think slowly I compare this addiction like being on a freeway. And I think with the help of these strategies and time in between gambling, I was able to not enter the freeway immediately when the urge hit me. And I think the more I did this, the more the grass grew over the pavement, you know, and eventually I didn't need to go there. Do you still get urges? No. No, I I don't, but maybe I should share this briefly with you, but I had breast cancer a couple of years ago. And the first thing that popped into my mind when I uh, was diagnosed was, what the heck, why don't you just go gambling again or something? I mean, I, I can't really recall exactly what happened. And that was after many, many years. So, you know, I think I have enough awareness, I have enough knowledge, I have enough strategies that that won't be an issue. But to say somebody is cured is probably probably not right because we all have we all have situations in our life where we can't predict what will happen and how our brain tries to trick us into thinking that this is a way to go. Yeah, absolutely. I've read your book. Yeah. The book's fantastic Thank and you. it's made me look at things in a, a different way. What made you write a book? Well, when I was in the midst of this whole fight with myself, and and I call it the beast, um, I swore that if I get out of it, I would share the way I got out, but I also shared my story. And the book seemed to be a great way of combining both, you know, giving people hope through my story, but giving them also something hands-on to do to fight the urge. So you've gone from the book to nearly finishing a PhD. Yeah. What are you learning in the PhD? Well, the PhD was actually, will be, a final product of the work that I have been doing for the last 14 years. In 2001, I founded a non-for-profit because I knew I couldn't beat the industry. So I thought, well, I understand what people are after that go into a gaming room. It's it's community. It's belonging. So for five years, I ran a restaurant offering people what they're trying to get in a gaming venue. And we provided them with a place where they could just gather for sheer the sheer pleasure of good company and lively conversation and good food. And it was a social enterprise. And what I learned there was that the people that – engaged in the restaurant as my volunteers and also came to the restaurant as customers, they recovered a lot quicker. And so I took this knowledge and then ran programs addressing social isolation and, that's a big word, leisure substitution, basically substituting gambling with something else. The void. Yeah. Yeah. The void, the big black hole that you feel when you stop gambling. Can you explain the void to us from a gambler 
and from somebody that's doing research on it. When you gamble and when I gambled, my whole day and my whole thought processes were about not to gamble or find money and time to gamble. So everything that I did was absorbed by gambling. And so when that stopped, even though I was quite enthusiastic when I finished, I felt like a hole in my heart and in my life. It was a bit like a grieving process. Do you know, say somebody passes away and you know they're at a better place, but they leave a hole yeah. and gambling left a hole. And and I know for many, many people, that's one of the reasons why they go back. They're socially isolated and they have nothing else to do. And many counseling services, you know, they picked up on that fact and they give people brochures and say, oh, why don't you join a gym? But by this stage, most people like myself have lost confidence and motivation to go anywhere. So what I tried to provide with my programs after the restaurant was forming friendships, forming a community, and then take people to fun activities so that the high that they used to get from gambling eventually was experienced in other activities. And that's not an immediate thing. Because there's a big difference there, isn't there, between getting that, say, dopamine hit from playing the pokies as opposed to maybe catching up with someone or catching up with a friend or a new acquaintance and trying to get that same level of... um, High. High, yeah. Well, I would agree and disagree. Yes, going for a coffee with a friend probably doesn't give you that high. But... For example, playing African drums in a group of people, that gives you a high. Going, say, competition bowling eventually gives you a high if you like that sport. So what we try to do is expose people to a smorgasbord of activities and with the hope that something would trigger that excitement for them and then they were able to join somewhere where they experienced a high. Maybe, you know, that dopamine rush was not uh, equivalent to to what they experienced at the pokies. But the longer they stayed away from the pokies, the more the high experiencing from other things became, you know, for them the same with the same intensity. So for gamblers out there who do feel a little bit socially isolated, what do you recommend for them? I think there's two things here. One is social isolation. So in some way, they have to find a community that they can join. So I think that's one thing. The next thing I would recommend is maybe looking at helping others. And I'm not meaning just other people with lived experience of problem gambling. I mean, if you go and volunteer somewhere, it will give you a high because you're focusing on something else besides you. And I think that's a great way of, first of all, giving back, but also to experience purpose. Because I think for many people, uh, if they got caught up in addiction, there is this empty feeling of why and who am I? Yeah, absolutely. 
some of your research also looks at the importance of identity. How can this help with relapse prevention? In recovery, I think what we do is try to focus on ourselves. So the identity is really linked with not to gamble. But the longer we work on ourselves, the more I think our focus changes and our identity changes. And I can always know when people are, if you would call it recovered, uh, there's various levels of it, when they start talking to other people about what they did. So for many, many years, I, I believe if I would have told my friends what I was doing, they would judge me. Once I stopped and once I was certain that I was on the right track of recovery, my identity shift enabled me to talk to other people and say, you know, this is what I did. You know, love yeah. me or leave me. I don't really care because I'm, I'm quite happy with myself now. You know, so the past was the past and my new identity, of course I had a past, but, yeah. but it wasn't me. I definitely had identity issues as well. I started gambling when I was 16, 17 and sort of between 16, 17 and 26, 27, I gambled really hard and that was kind of my only focus. Mm. So I didn't know... It might sound weird, but I didn't know that I was a good person. I was mm. always thinking about gambling. I was always thinking about how to get money um, in yeah. bad ways. I was always thinking about how to lie to somebody. So I never really um, had a like had a, had a really good idea on what type of person I was until I stopped. Mm -hmm. That it was actually just the gambling that was kind of making me that person. It's very difficult when you're in the midst of it. Yeah, that's right. You've devoted a lot of time to exploring ways to help other people caught up in the gambling trap. We're asking everyone in the podcasts to give some advice on what you think are some of the steps that could be done immediately. Can you share some of those with us? I love one of my strategies in the book because I think it's very practical, but it also can help people immediately to fight the urge. It starts with a tempting thought. And the tempting thought is, well, let's just go, this time I can control it. You know, let's spend $10. And, and what I learned to do was the minute I became aware of this tempting thought, I gave this thought an image. For me, my gambling part became a little demon. You know, it wasn't big, but it was ugly and little and it had bloodshot eyes. You know, the ones like um, Lord of the Rings where these little creatures hover above ground and the saliva yep. running down the face. Yeah, so my gambling beast became one of those and so I would sit him on the passenger seat, for example, when I was driving home. I would see him sitting there. And I was very vulnerable. Nobody knew where I was then. And I had, you know, could be stuck in traffic, anything. So I'm driving along and this thing would say things like, let's just call in here and spend $10. This can't be, can't control it. And I would see this ugly thing talking to me and I would talk back to it like I would talk to my worst enemy. I would say, hey, you would like to go and spend $10. I don't. Mm. So you just get lost. You know, I said worse things, but I think seeing that the podcast will be around for a while, I won't swear in public. <laughs> and some people can't relate to a demon image. You know, I had people taking snakes, spiders. I had a lady whose husband ran away with a secretary, so she put the secretary on the passenger seat. I would have taken the husband, but, you know. <laughs> so um, 
it's just something hands-on to do, to separate yourself from the urge and say, this is not me anymore. I can decide my own things and I'm not going to, I decide not to go gambling. So that's, that's how I did it. And I think it's very practical. There are yeah. many other ways, but I think that's a good start. Great. Thanks for joining us on Not A Dollar More. You're very welcome. Thank you. You're listening to Not A Dollar More, and we're talking about when relapses, urges, and triggers become part of problematic gambling behaviours and what you can do about them. Our next guest is Cheryl Lyons, a gambler's help counsellor who has worked with many people struggling with gambling problems. Thanks for coming in, Cheryl. Hi. Is there a difference between an urge and a trigger when we're talking about gambling? Triggers I like to think of as fuel or provokers, and that is of things like anxiety and stress. Loneliness is a, is a provoker as well, and boredom. And there are people who are triggers for you, and there are places that are triggers for you. Urges I see as the desire. It's the want, it's, it's the need, and it's just, just one bit. Urges and triggers can lead to a lapse or relapse. What's the difference between the two? A lapse is a one-off usually. You've had that one bet or you've been walking past the pub on the way home and, and you've had a really stressful day. So you decide that you'll go in and play the pokies because that'll make you feel better. That's a lapse. But then if it continues, often what happens if it continues is that you start gambling more often and you start gambling more money. So what is actually happening in the brain when a person has an urge? In our brain, there's a reward centre, okay? It's involved in pleasure and motivation and memory and movement. The reward centre provides a chemical called dopamine. And this chemical is released, giving us a hit of satisfaction and or pleasure whenever we do something that pleases the reward centre. So in turn, that encourages us to make a habit of whatever we've done that's made the reward centre release that chemical dopamine that makes us feel good. It sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, right. But it also works against you. When there's an up, there's always a down. And the situation is that... We gamble to win and the reward centre releases dopamine. But eventually and reasonably quickly, the reward centre becomes less responsive. There's less and less dopamine being released. And therefore we begin to gamble more to get that same hit, that same hit of satisfaction, that same hit of pleasure. We need to gamble more often So the habit actually becomes the gambling and it's no longer about the winning. I often hear people talk about the positive aspects of a relapse or a lapse. Can you tell us about this? If the lapse or relapse has been built into your recovery strategy, if you've already seen a counsellor or even if you're trying to do it on your own, then you're much more likely to understand that it's okay, that it happens. 
But the whole point of it is that you shouldn't see it as a failure. You're, you haven't failed and the actual thing is not a failure. If you see it as an educative or a learning experience, then that makes it much more positive. You can go back over the things that you've learned previously. I mean, recovery is hard. Yeah. It's not easy. It's, it's, it's a lifetime and it's hard work. So we don't always get things right the first time. And sometimes we have to go back and and just start again. Sometimes yeah. we actually have to start again. And I certainly know when I tried to stop many times, I had that all or nothing approach. You know, so I would say that's it, no more gambling, and then I'd talk myself into to going back and then it might only just have been a really small bet, but then that just opened the floodgates and it was yep. like, Oh well, I've started gambling again. Yep. You see a lot of that? Yes, and and that's the thing that you really need to harness that. That that one trip to the po to put some money through the pokies, you know, to put twenty bucks through the pokies, that's really that's just the start, you know, and it's time to immediately say, Okay, I need to pick myself up, dust myself off and get myself to the counsellor or call Gambler's Help. Yeah. Call the Gambler's Helpline because this isn't going anywhere good. Um, do you talk to your clients much about mindfulness? It's really important. When you're in the process, you lose all idea of time and place and you disassociate. It's, it's disassociation. I mean, you don't even really remember where you are. I was just thinking about all the times where I was sort of, you know, just gambling flat out and just couldn't stop and yeah. would, would spend hours and hours of gambling and come home and it was all just I hadn't thought about where I was. I hadn't thought about what I was doing. And that's why I, I often mention the mindfulness because I really think that would help me stop a lot sooner. Even if you sit down to gamble, if you then think about what am I doing? Where am I? Who am I? I'm okay. I'm here and I need to move forward. It's yeah. just it's being in the moment. Yeah, it's really good. And I think so many people will benefit from hearing that. Thanks so much for joining us today, Cheryl. You're welcome. Our final guest is Jay, who's happy to share his gambling story with us and how he managed his urges when he decided that he'd had enough of playing the pokies. Thanks for joining us, Jay. Not a problem. Can you tell us how your gambling got started? It's sort of part of, I think, a bit of my family culture. So I've grown up with gambling from parents and relatives. So it basically started from that and just steamrolled to where I realised I had the problem. Yeah, mine's a bit the same. I um, started gambling when I was about 14, just little bets at home, and then kind of escalated into something a lot bigger. When did you start to, to think you, you were getting out of control with your gambling? Probably when I first went to monthly pay cycle at work. Basically, I get my monthly pay on the 15th of every month. 
And then within a week I had no money left and I realised that that was really the time to pull back and seek some help. Because I remember on a Wednesday, I got paid Wednesday afternoons, I remember on a Wednesday I was, I was in my head I'm going, I'm actually not going to gamble today, I'm going to be really good, I'm going to pay all my bills, I'm going to pay the, the people I owe money to. Was your intention leading up to the getting paid always to gamble? No, it was a bit like yours actually, it was a bit of um, like, yeah, I need to clear the debt that I have, pay the bills, pay the rent, everything like that, pay like obviously when you're in the height of gambling, you borrow money off people, so pay them back as well. And then whatever was left would have been for gambling as well, so the same situation as you. So that, not obviously having any money after a week of being paid, was kind of the realisation that something had to change? Absolutely, yeah. It was um, struggling to find money to get petrol for my car, to get to work. Obviously, if you don't have petrol in your car, you can't get to work, you can't get paid, so that's where it sort of spiralled from there. How many years of that was there? Probably full on. There's probably about two years of that. Like I sort of went in spits and spurts. So at some stage it was like really bad where it was sort of within three days of being paid. I had no money left for the rest of the month. And then other times it was sort of I'd go two weeks without gambling and then fall back into the pitfalls again after the two weeks. Take us to the time when you decided to stop. I'd just been in a relationship with my partner for leading up to 12 months. We were looking at finances and talking about possibly, you know, trying to save for a home loan and getting loans and stuff like that. And she looked on the um, credit website, or I'm not sure what it's called, but... Um, like a credit score or something? Credit like score, that? that's the one, yeah. yeah. So she looked at that. In my history, I'd, I had declared bankruptcy, and obviously that was due to the gambling back in the day. That thankfully now that's off my credit file, so it's all done. But we were talking about getting a house, and then we got to the point where she saw that on my file. Basically, it was a massive shock to her because I hadn't told her. And then she, her and I sat down and spoke together about that. And from there, I realised that I needed to stop and I wanted to stop. Yeah. So she didn't know you gambled at all. She knew I gambled a bit, but nothing like what I what I had done. Would have been a stressful time. Most definitely, most definitely. So, Jay, you decided to get help. Where did you start? Uh, I started with a counsellor, one-on-one counselling sessions back in October last year. Recently, as of about last week, I think, we both agreed that I'd come to a good space and completed the sessions. Well, you graduated. Yes, graduated. Oh, well done. <laughs> Thank you. So we got you in today to talk about urges, triggers and relapse. So do you still get urges? Oh, absolutely you do. Driving to and from work, um, you see the venues and you still sort of think back to the times you won. But um, the massive thing for me about the urges was that part of the counselling, it was agreed that I would do self-exclusion. So that was a massive thing. Yeah. And that helps with the urges. Yeah, okay. So it's a, it's a massive thing for me to to do that. Can you tell us about some of the emotions that you're going through when you do feel like gambling? I was driving past, it makes you think of all the, the times you won, the urges, definitely. It takes you back to, the, yeah, like I said, the time you win. It doesn't take you back to all the times you lose. So how did you not go into a venue after all those things were running through your head? Yeah. With the counsellor, we agreed basically that when I had these urges, I would take some course of action. One course of action was to call my partner. Uh, another course of action for me was to call Gambler's Help. 
just as I'm driving home or whatever, put on, put the Bluetooth on, ring Gambler's Help, and then just talk to them for 10, 15 minutes, and it sort of it made the urges cease quite quickly. Are you still vulnerable to those urges and triggers these days? I am, but less less uh, frequently than what I was when I first gave up, for sure. Yeah. So what about triggers? What were the triggers like? The trigger for me was having a few beers, losing a bit of perspective when you had a few too many drinks. The trigger was that for me, and that sort of something that I try to preclude myself from now in terms of like if I go to the pub, I have four drinks rather than 14. Mm. So the got a lot more perspective in my head. Yeah. Did other people ever encourage you to gamble? Not really, no. Okay. No. Um, it's just that little that little person on your shoulder. So you gambled alone mostly? <laughs> in the pokies mostly, yes. But in the, the tab sports bar, I was probably with mates. And you're probably like other people that also just started out socially. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So how's life like now that you're not gambling? Uh, yeah, as I said, I've completed, or not completed, but... Um, Finished with a counsellor. The money situation's a million times better. Uh, I've actually got savings now. Moved into a new house with my partner. We've rented a property. Um, the first month's rent and the bond I paid for. It's a completely different person from what I was back in October last year. Have you got a piece of advice that you'd sort of give to somebody going through a situation similar to yours? There's probably a couple of things. One thing that worked really well for me was the self-exclusion. When I had the urges and triggers, that stopped me from doing it, basically. And the other thing, probably the main thing for that worked well for me was telling people about it, getting over that embarrassment about the fact that I was gambling and thinking that I was the only person in the world that had the issue. So, And everyone that I've told has been really supportive of me. If we go out or something, we don't get in the situation where there's an opportunity to gamble, so... And I think sometimes it, you recognise when you go through problems like this that everyone's sort of got something going on, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. It's everyone out there, like some might be gambling, drinking, whatever it is. Yeah. No one's perfect in this world. Make the most of your chances, I think. Yeah, that's right. Jay, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Shane. Good on you, mate. Good Cheers. luck for the future. Thank you very much. You've been listening to our episode on relapses, urges and triggers on Not A Dollar More. Check out our website for more information about Gabby's research and also the other resources and information about harmful gambling and all the different types of help available at notadollarmore.org.au. You can also try the Gambler's Help number on 1800 858 858 for free and confidential advice. This podcast has been produced by Daniel Community Health. Have a listen to our other Not A Dollar More episodes for more stories of problem gambling, recovery, ways to get help, and what others have done to help themselves. See you later.